Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. No life, no fun. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? Gen X Grown Up is a YouTube channel website and audio podcast you're listening to right now. All made for and by people who love exploring media, games, tech, and toys of yesterday and today through the eyes of Gen Xers who refuse to grow up. Your dinner cannot just be french fries. Basically, life sucks as a grown-up. Hello and welcome to the Gen X Grown Up Podcast. Mo here. In July of 2022, the entire crew went to the Southern Fried Gaming Expo in Atlanta, Georgia, and we had a blast. And it was there that I got to speak to the creator of my favorite arcade game of all time, Qbert. Warren Davis was kind enough to sit down and talk to me about his career making arcade games and so much more. So here is a special podcast for all of our fourth listeners of that interview straight from the floor of the Southern Fried Gaming Expo. I began an interview by asking Warren Davis how he came up with the idea of Qbert and how the game developed. Yeah, sure. So, you know, uh, I mean, a lot of people uh, ask, you know, where'd you get the idea? But there really was no idea at the beginning. Uh, I was a fairly new hire. I had worked on uh, somebody else's game just to get my feet wet, learn the hardware. And uh, after that, uh, they basically said, make a game. But I I didn't necessarily feel ready. Uh, I didn't have any ideas. Um, But what I did have was a desire to sort of teach myself some techniques And um, one day I was walking around in our office. We had a big open area that we worked in and we shared development systems. And one of the programmers, Kanye Abamoto, had a screen filled with these cubes that you now know as the Cubert Pyramid. But they were were originally uh, drawn by Jeff Lee and they filled the entire screen because it was a, a small number of repeating blocks that would so just fill the screen. And Khan was not really using it as anything but eye candy. So when I looked at it, I just thought, this is interesting to me because if you carved that into the shape of a pyramid and and a ball fell on the top cube, it would have one of two places to bounce. And in fact, every time it bounced, it would always have one of two ways to bounce. Well, that's binary, left, right, zero, one. So I realized that if I had a a a string of random bites, each bite would determine the path of a ball from top to bottom. I thought, okay, this is, there's a nice little exercise. Just have a ball bouncing and, uh, you know, randomly bouncing. And, you know, I'd have to learn the gravity. I'd have to learn the, to simulate the physics of hitting uh, the, the, a cube and then changing its velocity to bounce and all that stuff. So that was my programming exercise I set to myself. And that was, and I did that. I was like, oh, okay. Then people looked at it in the office and they were like, wow, that looks kind of cool. You should do something with that. And then I thought, oh, well, okay, maybe I should. <laughs> Well, if you think of that pyramid as a play field, I guess you could have a character hopping all, jumping from cube to cube. So I thought, all right, let me put that in. So I went to Jeff Lee. Do you have any characters I could use? And he had a whole bunch of characters he'd designed that he didn't really have a, a game for. So um, I, I said, Can I, I'd like to use that one, the big, you know, sort of... <laughs> Uh, oval one with the long nose cause, and, and the thing that attracted me to him is he kind of looked kind of pathetic <laughs> so I was like yeah let me do that so 
Um, he said about getting me all the angles I needed, you know, up, down, reverse, all that. Uh, and I programmed a character, because he didn't have a name then, hopping on the pyramid of cubes. So <clears throat> it continued on in that way. So there was never a plan. It was always, I did something, and then I looked at it and I said, what should I do next? Mm -hmm. And uh, that, it literally went that way to the end until it was a game, until it was a complete game. The idea of putting a knocker in yeah. when you fell. I remember, I, mean, I actually remember the first time I played Qbert. You know, I had fun, I was playing it, and the first time I fell off the edge and I felt something hit the bottom of the, the cabinet, I was like shocked. I actually stepped away from the machines. I thought somebody kicked it. I thought something had it. Like I thought something went wrong. You know, then I realized it was part of the thing. And I said, "That's like the coolest thing I've ever seen because I have not seen any nothing give you that kind of feedback." Yeah. Where did that yeah. come about? Well, pinball did. That, so that, that that knocker is a pinball knocker. You, they're in pinball machines all the time. They had me for years. Uh, it's just a little piston uh, attached to a solenoid. You give it a little electrical signal. It shoots out and hits the side of the cabinet. The, to put it in Cubert was the idea of one of our engineering techs. His name is Rick Ty, and uh, you know, as as many you know, as the through the entire development, people in the office would play it and see it, and mm -hmm. many people had ideas, and many people would give me ideas that I would say, yeah, thank you, but no. But Rick said, what you know? What if when he landed on the bottom of the cabinet, there was a knocker, and we hit, we heard the knock, and I thought that's a fantastic idea. <laughs> so we put the knocker in. But the problem is it sounded like a knock, like somebody knocking at the door. And that's not what I wanted. I was, I was sound, looking for sound that sounded like a body, like a sack of potatoes hitting the, the ground, more of a thud. And uh, so we, we experimented. You know, we put in little pieces of materials to sort of soften the sound as the knocker, as the piston hit the wood. And we found something and it softened the sound to a thud and I thought oh my god this is perfect so we went to management we said we got this amazing feature this is the coolest feature and they were like well you know I mean I'm sure they were happy to get rid of some excess pinball knockers so they were like yeah let's put the knocker in they didn't like the idea of the foam they thought it was too labor intensive that it would add too much of a cost to the game because somebody had a they had to go in and they had to get the foam and then that was, you know, that wasn't maybe readily purchasable and then, and then they had to position it. So basically they just put it in with the knock. So the thing is, as, as cool as people think that feature is, and they do, and I'm very grateful, I know how much cooler it could have been. And, and I have to live with that. But I do, nowadays, since so many people own cabinets, I recommend they put some sort of piece of dense foam rubber right where the piston hits the wood to soften that a little bit. And I've done it on my cabinet at home. And it Makes it more, more of a thud than I a... I think it sounds a little bit better, yeah. So what was it like working in that environment back then? Seemed kind of a high stress, because I know that there was a lot of competition. There was God, a lot no. Of it was not? Not for me, no, okay. not at Gottlieb. Uh, so when I started at Gottlieb, it was a very small department. Tim Skelly was uh, who, the, the rock star, the guy who had made games, track record, and he had been hired to do Gottlieb's first in-house game, which turned out to be Reactor. There were only maybe, I want to say maybe four tops, four programmers. Uh, Jeff Lee, I think, was the only artist. Some of the programmers did their own artwork. We had maybe one or two sound guys. It, it, was a, it was a very small group. We, we were in a, a separate location from the main pinball plant. Mm -hmm. We were totally separate from pinball. And we had a manufacturing plant that was completely empty because they hadn't started making Reactor yet. And we had two guys running the department. It was Howie Rubin, who was the uh, VP of Business Development, and Ron Waxman who was the VP of Engineering. And Howie was the kind of guy that would kind of come into the big room where we all worked, and he'd say, all right, stop what you're doing. Everybody would kind of stop it there, and he'd say, come on in the plant, we're gonna play some football. And everybody like, 
we want to work on our games. It's like, no, you're coming in and you're playing football. And we go in the plant, we toss a football around. So, no, I wouldn't call it a high-stress thing. When I was, ta- you know, after I worked on um, the first game I was working on helping out with, they just said, make a game. That's it. They was like, all right, make a game. No direction at all. No just- direction at all. It was because the thing about Howie and Ron, which I love them for and I give them a lot of credit, they knew that they were not experts in what made a good video game. And they hired people and trusted that they would know what made a good video game. And it, it, it's, it worked out in some cases. As the department grew, I'd say it didn't work out in some cases because some people, you know, just weren't that good programmers. But they protected us from upper management, so we never felt any of the stress that they might have been feeling. So, yeah, no, it, it, this in Gottlieb, the work environment was very loose and very lax. How did it feel like? I mean, you basically got to the plate first time and hit a home run. Yes. Did that add pressure? Like, okay, now you got to come up with another great thing or putting yourself to kind of like that you wanted to kind of try to top it or come up with something as good. I did want to come up with something. I don't know that I cared if it would be as good. Like, I'm not a perfection. Like, I always think perfection is a great goal, but I don't ever expect to achieve it. So I'm like a weird kind of perfectionist. You know what I mean? Because I really do think perfection should be your goal. But I also cut myself slack if I don't get there because I just think it's it's almost unattainable. And after and listen, Qbert was a success. Totally blew me away. Totally, you know, shocked me. Very gratifying for me. But it didn't go to my head. I didn't suddenly say, "Oh, I must know everything." What I felt was I was I was lucky. I I didn't make I didn't screw up too bad. Okay. <laughs> But the thing is, it was my first game, and I just had lots of ideas. Everything I did in the development of Cubit just sparked so many other possibilities and ideas of what I might be able to do. So when they asked me if I wanted to do a, a sequel to Cubit, I said no, flat out. It was like not even a question. It's like you already ground, you already trod. Yeah, it's like, you know, I did that. I want to go on to other things. And I did, and I started developing another game that I got excited about, and I thought it was cool. And maybe one of the biggest regrets of my career is that I never finished that game. What was that game? It didn't have a name because I don't name things, but the closest name I gave it was either Ricochet Rabbit, which is I couldn't use because it was the name of a cartoon character from the 1960s, or Bunny Bonded. So it was... <laughs> It was the thing where you as a character, you had a, a shield that covered, you know, if you imagine uh, like an, octag- an octagonal shape, a stop sign shape around you. So your shield would have eight sides if it went all the way around. Okay. But it didn't go all the way around. It went five sides and three of the sides behind you were open. And you could turn. And so things were flying at you. And if they hit a shield, they would bounce. But if they hit you from the back, you would die. It's interesting because I've never seen that dynamic. No, yet. actually, that sounds like something I would totally play, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> I thought it was fantastic. So, and then, and I don't know why, but I had this, <laughs> to me, it was like bunnies flying through the air that you had to avoid. <laughs> And you had to bounce them off your shield and ricochet them into cages. So, uh, bunny bondage. And I have actually have video footage of like 30 seconds of it. But the thing is, I kind of got, I kind of got stuck and I kind of got bored and I didn't know where to take it after a certain point. And I wish I had just stuck with it. But what happened at the time was Dennis Nordman, who is a designer, uh, now known as a classic pinball designer, you know, one of the legends of uh, pinball design. But back then, he was hired by Gottlieb just to do video game design. And he had an idea for a laser disc game, which became Us Versus Them. So he came to me with this idea, and I, I loved his idea. It was a science fiction B-movie, kind of a laser disc with actors and scenes. And I was like, oh, man, I got so excited. And so I just totally dropped Bunny Bondage. But um, to answer your original question, because I really <laughs> right. am, I'm veering off into the hinterland here. Uh, To answer your original question, uh, 
I didn't really put a pressure on me. I was just having fun. And, and to me, that was the beauty of, of this job and this career is like I was able to have fun because I wanted people to have fun playing my games. Well, I hope you're enjoying this interview with Kubrick creator Warren Davis. Right after this short break, he talks about his involvement in one of the first video games to use laser discs, his book, and his thoughts on seeing his characters in Wreck-It Ralph, plus other topics, so please stick around. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. If you're a die-hard Gen X grown-up, you can pledge your support by clicking join on YouTube or by becoming a patron at genxgrownup.com slash Patreon. Mention Us versus Them. That was like one of the early... Now, had Dragon's Lair already come out by that yes. point? Okay, so Dragon's Lair, I guess... No, everyone's trying to jump on that Laserdisc oh, yeah. bandwagon. Exactly. Was like, that was the next, I remember that was like the big thing because they could charge more for those games. That's one thing, yeah. <laughs> but they really thought that was the future of games because graphically, you've got movie-quality graphics. It's, it's it's not interactive necessarily, but Gottlieb went the route, like, you know, whereas Dragon's Lair was just an interactive cartoon, Gottlieb went the route of Mach 3. That was their first Laserdisc game. So they had flying footage so they you know they had hired a company to go f shoot all this flying footage and they superimposed our you know airplanes or jet fighter or whatever on top of it and that worked i mean mach 3 was a huge uh, hit for those who don't know could you explain like us versus them like what was the kind of the premise of the game well basically it was an uh, alien invasion sort of like a you know 1950s a b science fiction movie so the idea was there was a control center somewhere, command center, where our, you know, intrepid hero, Captain Tracy, is commanding a bunch of jet pilots who are flying all over the world, battling this alien invasion. So we would cut between scenes in the control room and the jet fighters. So the gameplay was the jet fighters. And, you know, you'd, you'd see them in the cockpit and they'd say something and then and then you just play for like a, a minute of gameplay where you'd be shooting the aliens. But because we wanted to give it a movie quality, every level had a different viewpoint. So sometimes you were, you were side-scrolling, sometimes you were above, kind of looking down, sometimes you were first person right behind the jet plane. Originally, the concept was to make it like a movie in that you're constantly changing the angle like you would in a movie, but I pointed out that that was a little impractical. If somebody's playing and you know, you're lining up a shot, then all of a sudden the camera cuts to a completely different angle, it's a little disoriented. So we went with this idea of different levels and you know, it, it was challenging, but it was also fun because we had limited space on laser disc but we also did a thing where randomly you might get a different background like your, your level one might be in one of three different locations and throughout the game there were places where you might randomly get different backgrounds or different locations we had people flying in different cities all over the country. Now, Dennis and I were actually up in a Learjet shooting flying footage uh, over Lake Powell, Arizona, farmland, desert. Uh, we were up in a helicopter 20, 26 degrees below zero in, in the winter in Chicago with, with a cameraman literally strapped to an open door of the helicopter shooting out of the helicopter door. So we had a number of Chicago scenes. It was crazy. I, would say, I couldn't believe we were doing all this, but we, we did. And, uh, you know, I got to edit all the 
footage. Uh, I got to direct the scenes with the live actors because I was always uh, like a wannabe filmmaker. I, I made movies when I was in high school and, and my career choices were either filmmaking or computers. And everybody kind of steered me to computers. It was fine. It was a 50-50 for me, but now I was like getting to be a filmmaker as well. So I just ate it up. I, I was in heaven, even though it was a lot of work, many all-nighters. Because in addition to being the only game program on the, I mean, I programmed the entire game. Oh, you're the only developer in the whole thing? I was the only programmer. And in addition to doing all the game programming, I was also doing all this other stuff, like, you know, showing people, you know, doing the flying footage and doing, and, uh, doing the um, editing. So, yeah, it was a lot of work. Oh, wow. Sounds like great, though. One thing I was surprised, again, I, I'm, I don't say like a lot people. I knew you as the Cooper guy, to be honest. But of course, you know, get prepared for this and actually did a lot of research and digging in, and you worked on Mortal Kombat. I'm Marginally, like, yeah. My, my main contribution to Mortal Kombat was the digitizing system. While I was at Williams, I had created a digitizing system that let artists, you know, let, let the game creators videotape live actors and then they would strip out the background and they'd create frames of animation with digitized video. So this was very new. This was a very new technology. And um, it changed the look of our games. So Mortal Kombat used it. The first Mortal Kombat used the most crude form of that system. I had actually left William, so we developed NARC. And I was part of the team that developed that system. And then uh, uh, Eugene Jarvis and Jack Hager and George Petro created NARC. And then John Newcomer, who created Joust, and I were working on a different game, which ultimately got canceled, and then NARC was released. I left William shortly after that, and I, I went to work for another company, and I made another game called Exterminator, which is a whole other story okay. we, don't have to get, <laughs> we don't have to get into. And then came back to Williams to join the Terminator 2 development team because somebody had left in the middle of that, and I knew the system, so I, I, was, I came up to speed very quickly. But while I came back, I looked at the digitizing system, and they were still using my original system from three years earlier. Three years? Yeah. Yeah, and I thought, oh my, it's like, you know, new boards had come out, memory was cheaper, PCs were, f I just assumed people would upgrade that system and they never did. So I took it upon myself to do that. So then, you know, for later games, Mortal Kombat 2 and 3 and Revolution X and WWF and NBA Jam, we had every time the, our hardware improved, I would improve the system to sort of take advantage of the capabilities of our new hardware. Because I remember when Mortal Kombat came out, that was one of the big things they touted was like, you know, they actually had like live people doing martial arts that they digitized yeah. and all that stuff. So that was all through the stuff that you helped create? Yeah. And the thing is, you know, what was genius about what uh, Ed Boon and John Tobias created was they really went with large images and they broke them down into pieces. So like, you know, somebody's head might be separate from their body, might be separate from their arms, but they were just large. They were very large. And um, on, on the previous games that used digitizing, because there were a whole bunch uh, like high impact football and uh, trog which was like claymation again a very genius use of digitizing and of course the original narc images were smaller so they had they were less defined but with the larger size image you could get more detail in and that's what they did and i just thought that was genius yeah that was they really made use of digitizing in a, a really smart way so when we came back, you said after three years, were you able to like kind of do all those upgrades and, and really bring it more to a yeah. current technology level? Yeah, mostly level? the things that changed mostly was the boards started having chroma key capability, which meant you could just wipe out, you know, if, you, if you shot somebody on a chroma key blue background, you could eliminate the background. So theoretically, it should be easier for the artists to touch up the edges. I'm told they still didn't, weren't able to because unfortunately the, the, the video that, if you were shooting on videotape, there was bleed. And so you didn't get crisp edges. You'd have to really light it properly and shoot live on a, on a blue background to do the chroma key well. And I think by Revolution X, we 
sort of were able to do that. The other way that things really improved, though, in, in, in my software were palettes. So NARC was the first system that had 256 colors. Before that, games had 16 colors. You know, we had a hardware d designer called Mark Lafredo, and he, every time we had a new system, he, you know, if memory costs came down, he would add more palettes. So we would have maybe instead of one 256 color palette, we'd have 16 256 color palettes. And, and if we maybe we could devote one palette just to a character. Oh, you actually could use like a palette per a yeah. character like that. Yeah. And, and, and again, once you can devote a lot of colors to a, a character, you know, you get all the different shades of, of color that that character needs. One of the things that my software did is if you created a group of, let's say you took all of your frames of animation with one character, it would compute the best 256 colors. So, you know, it was pretty powerful stuff. And then towards the end, I think it also, you could just export whatever your image is, you could export them in assembler code and just include it in your program. It was, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I, I was a very big believer in tools and I, I've always loved, in addition to making games, I love making tools because that just makes your game, your life of making games so much easier, you know, rather than having to reinvent the wheel. Well, it's not like that tool went on to a whole bunch of other uses and games and everything else after you. Yeah, I mean, it, well, it was used for pretty much all of Williams games in uh, the late 80s and through the mid 90s until they went to 3D Polygon. And then they still used it for textures. There, like in Cruising USA, for example, um, a lot of the textures were digitized. But um, once you got into 3D polygons, uh, it really, it was just going in a different direction. I, I always thought full, I, I thought full motion video was going to be the future. Interactive movies. Yeah. Well, eventually it did. It did, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it just took a little bit longer to get there, but actually it did go there. So I remember when the 3D polygon stuff came out, it just... Sure. It, it didn't look real. Yeah. It didn't look, you know. You know it was almost like a step back in almost when I was playing those games. Right. But uh, that's the thing. But everybody adopted it. That became the de facto uh, standard. And so digitizing kind of went away. And you wrote a memoir. I um, did. And you're here. And actually, I'm going to definitely pick up a copy of it here. So what prompted you to write this? Well, <laughs> uh, insanity? No, I'm not totally kidding. No, I, you know, I, I, in the mid-2000s, I started getting invited to more and more of these retro gaming shows. Retro gaming was starting to grow as a thing in different cities. And I would go and I'd be invited and I'd tell stories. And, you know, what happened after a while? And I'd run into old colleagues that I haven't seen in years. And we'd talk old times and that, that would trigger memories. And I just started to realize, like, how many stories there actually were. And it's like, I couldn't go and tell all those stories in an hour or 45 minutes. I just, there was way too many. And as I started telling the stories, I just said, you know, it, it might make sense to collect these in a book. And then at some point, uh, I, I, I guess the idea just was gestating in me for a long time. And then at one point I sat down and I started, I wrote an outline. I was like, okay, how would I structure it? You know, breaking it down to an outline made it a lot easier. And then at one point I said, I, I, I've got to start writing this damn memoir. So I started writing it. I just did one month. Uh, I gave myself a month to write each chapter and I would just cross my fingers and hope that I could finish it in a, in a year. It took me maybe two years. I think I was doing all right up to a point and then I kind of stalled. I had a, somebody I, I met a, at a friend's party. I met a guy who had some books published. And we were talking about this, and he said he, he offered to be my editor. So I would send him chapters, and he would, you know, no, notate them, send them back for, you know, and I would decide if I liked his changes, if I didn't like his changes. And, you know, after a couple of years, I had a book. So then it was like, all right, now I've got, what do I do? Uh, I think I looked half-heartedly for a publisher. I really didn't know what to do or how to do what that. What year was this about? 
Uh, 2000, by this time, maybe 2018, 2019. And then I eventually decided I'll just self-publish. And I had to lay out the book. I had to do all the layout. I did, you know, did the cover design, the title. I, did, I literally did everything myself, which I did on the computer. And it was fine. Dug up all of these pictures and stuff. So I had, you know, photos. And in the uh, fall of 2019, I actually had a book. You know, I had to find printers and uh, had to find places where to sell it online. All this stuff. It was a lot of work, but it was also a labor of love. I enjoyed doing it. It was really kind of fascinating to me. But then, uh, so 2019, uh, November, I took it to Free Play Florida in Orlando. And that was the only show I ever got to take it to because in 2020, the pandemic hit. All of my appearances, I had lined up a whole bunch of appearances. They were all canceled. And... (laughs) I sat around for most of 2020 doing nothing. So in my boredom, I started really researching publishers, finding publishers who would accept a a manuscript from an unknown author. And I started writing to them and just saying, are you interested? No, most people weren't. Uh, I did get one person who said he was interested. And I was shocked. You know, he wanted a sample chapter. I sent him a chapter. And we started talking and negotiating. And by, uh, I think it was January 1st, 2021, we signed a contract. So then, but the bad news was he needs his lead time because they want to revamp it. They want to re-edit it. New title, new cover, new new everything. They wanted a forward and afterward. And it took like most of 2021 to do all that. So really the book was just published January of 2022. I'm very excited to read it because it's almost like kind of seeing behind a curtain of all the things I loved growing up, mm-hmm. like how that stuff came about. Because, yeah. you know, as a kid, you know, I went 15, 16, I, I played the game. That's all I cared yeah, about, you right. know. But just knowing like the work that went into it and yeah. the people and the characters, I, I was just say I'm really, really looking forward to reading Well, I hope stories. you enjoy it. I, I, I Actually, the feedback I've gotten has been phenomenal. People seem to really enjoy it. I wrote it because people seem to be interested in this stuff. The thing that's fascinating to me is the experience of making games is completely unlike the experience of playing games. <laughs> so they're, they're not related in any way. But the fact that so many people are interested uh, is, is just, uh, it's very rewarding to me. Is the whole retro, that surprise you that, that so many people are that interested? I mean, Oh yeah. Yeah, and, and the first I got wind that retro gaming was a thing was actually kind of like the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. That's when, uh, you know, some PC versions of like Pac-Man and Frogger came out and people started talking on the, the bulletin boards. You know, the, the precursor to the Internet was, you know, they had bulletin boards and uh, people started talking. People started mentioning Qbert uh, and I was just like stunned. I mean, really, really stunned me. There was one guy, I believe his name was uh, Steve Reiner, and he kind contacted me and said he was a fan of Qbert and he wanted to know he was putting up a little uh, uh, like website and he wanted to know if I wanted to write a little history of Qbert which I did and um, the thing is he wasn't that far away from Chicago I, I just I told him about faster harder more challenging Qbert because it only existed in my machine at home that's the only place it existed and I invited him up so he and his girlfriend came up to my house and I showed them faster harder more challenging Qbert and they were very excited and it was you know I just didn't it I had moved on. I mean, I was doing other things. So uh, it continued to grow, and then I got invited to the uh, Classic Gaming Expo in Las Vegas. Those guys who now run the National Video Game Museum in uh, in Frisco, Texas, which is a phenomenal place. I, I recommend anybody who likes video games to go see that. You know, they had their show, and I came to their show uh, a few times, and then suddenly there were shows in other cities, and there, you know, it, there were a lot of shows, and, and I was getting invited to these. So it was, it was a gradual thing, but I, I don't, I think to this day, I'm still surprised. <laughs> I'm still a little stunned, because this, by the way, is the 40th anniversary of Cuber. This is 2022. 
The game was developed in 1982 between, I'd say, around March, April till around August, September. It went off the production line, started rolling off the production lines in October of 1982. It's 40 years exactly. It's crazy. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this question because John, one of the other people in Jenny's growing up, his favorite movie of all time is Wreck-It Ralph. More than like uh, Star Wars, more than I Citizen would say Kane. Pro- I would more, say probably, yeah. More than Casablanca. <laughs> they brought Kubert into that movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was that something you knew about or just was that a surprise to you nope. when you saw it on there? Nope, didn't know at all. <laughs> the thing is, uh, I don't own the rights to Kubert. I never have. None of us, Jeff Lee, uh, who did the graphics, Dave Thiel, none of us own the rights to Kubert. Gottlieb owned the rights. They were owned by Columbia Pictures. Mm-hmm. When they shut their doors, the rights reverted to Columbia. Sony bought Columbia, and so now Sony Sony has the rights to Kubert. But uh, uh, you know, I always wish they did more uh, with the character. In fact, I was the, the person who told Sony they owned the rights to Kubert. In the late 90s, I was at a game developers conference, and I ran into some guys from Sony Computer Entertainment of America. And this is when all those, uh, you know, retro gaming PC games were coming out, uh, Frogger and uh, Pac-Man. And I said, how come you're not doing anything with Kubert? And they were like, what are you talking about? So, well, you own the rights to Kubert. They were like, we own the rights to Kubert? What? So, a year later, there was a Kubert for PC. How did you feel, though? Just... I mean, seeing it in a huge motion picture. It was a mixed bag because on the one hand, I'm very grateful that the character's included and remembered. On the other hand, he's remembered as a homeless guy who's been forgotten. But, but you know, I got over that pretty quickly because, uh, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Well, let me say, it's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate all this time. Well, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate your time too. I guess it maybe could have been any game, but it wasn't. The one that really made me and my brother just that we spent time on was yours. And I'm really just grateful and really thankful for you. I, I am equally grateful. It's a very, I mean, you have no idea, but it's a huge gift to have been able to bring joy to people that way. And uh, I'm never, uh, you know, that never leaves my mind. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time, sir. You bet. Hey, thanks for listening. You can find copies of his book, Creating Cubert and Other Classic Video Arcade Games in all the major booksellers. But if you would like to get an autographed copy and don't have the opportunity to see him at one of his appearances, you can order one directly from his store at warndavisshop.square.site and we'll have links in the show notes and for our patreon supporters we have some exclusive content where warren davis talks about a game that didn't go as expected called exterminator it's a great story and it's available to all of our supporters on patreon i hope you enjoyed this interview as much as i enjoy speaking with them thanks for listening and take care everybody Gen X Grown Up is a member of the Evergreen Podcast family. Learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast.